Okay, uh, so our theme for the year is Strong in Christ. Strong in Christ, I appreciate, I'm assuming Travis put Ephesians 6.10 up there on the, on the letters. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. So we're studying through the Gospels to really think about how can we find strength in Christ. Even the, the verse we read this morning, God's power at work within, within us. How can we connect with that? How can we be filled with that power and really be uh, strong? And so I'm going to be preaching through the book of Luke, and uh, Grayson is going to be preaching through the book of John, and I believe he started last week, and I heard it was outstanding. And then Eli is going to be preaching through the book of Matthew. And so uh, get ready to study the Gospels this year, Amen. And I love that we have different preachers because we have different angles, different voices, different uh, strengths and weaknesses, and different ages even. And I know it seems like I'm probably in my mid-20s, but I'm actually about 20 years older than those other guys. And, uh, you know, a little bit more um, older uh, perspective, I guess. So the book of Luke, chapter 1, we're going to read and study verses 1 through 25 today. The title of my message is Strong in the Truth. Strong in the truth. The book of Luke was written by Luke. Amen. Probably he was written by Luke. Uh, Luke was Paul's co-worker that we find in the book of Acts. Uh, he was the beloved physician. So Luke was a doctor. He, he either was a Gentile or maybe he was a Jew but lived more a Greek lifestyle. But definitely he was writing to Gentiles. So as some of the other Gospels more written to Jews with a Jewish background, Luke was writing to the good old Gentiles, which is kind of cool for us, right? Because I think pretty much all of us are Gentiles, and uh, um, so he's writing to us. But it's really neat that Luke was an educated medical doctor, and he wrote to an educated Gentile audience. And so a lot of times we think, Oh, just Christian faith, we just check kind of our minds out and just go on blind faith. And Luke wrote, uh, contradicting that, no, this, this, this is actual, it's historical, and he did very methodical research with the eyewitnesses. Actually, I think I got tongue-tied there, which is actually what happens in Luke chapter 1. So we'll get into that later. Um, but uh, as the communities were being dispersed, the, the uh, first eyewitnesses, so Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus, but he did thorough research with all of the eyewitnesses and the numerous stories and gospels that were already written, and uh, uh, was a companion of Paul's and uh, really carefully wrote down through this thorough investigation. He wrote this to a guy by the name of Theophilus, probably an individual, but it may have, the, the word Theophilus, the name means lover of God. It's a Greek name, so it may have been this, this uh, letter written to just any Gentiles who loved God, convincing them and showing them that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Amen? Okay, so let's read here. Let's start reading in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. I also remembered my glasses, so that's a good thing. Hopefully we'll be able to read the Word of God accurately. Okay, Luke chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 25. 
Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop right there actually and, and give us point number one, seeking the truth. Seeking the truth. So here Luke is says his perspective, where he's writing from, and then he says, I'm writing this to you, Theophilus, so you may know the exact truth. That you may know the exact truth. The word know is epigenosko, which means to know thoroughly, accurately, and well. This word is used 20 times in Luke's writings. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So Luke, the gospel, and the book of Acts is kind of a volume one, volume two of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, and then the Holy Spirit in the, le- in, in the book of Acts, okay? But he wants his audience to know, to know. So often today, we hear the, the, the idea that you can't really know, and especially when it comes to truth. But here he says, no, you can know the exact truth. That's esphalia, and that word means a firmness or stability or certainty or undoubted truth. Undoubted truth. You know, the world tells us that we can't really know truth this day. We, it's very popular in our society to have relative truth or even the phrase, well, this is my truth. Have you heard that before? Well, I want us to look at this verse in John chapter 18, verse 37. Let's go to that one, please, Josh. John 18, 37 says, Therefore Pilate said to him, this is Pilate questioning Jesus, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Amen? Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Okay, so he went all philosophical on Jesus Jesus is like, you know what, I appreciate your deep thinking, but it's really not that complicated. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who is for the truth is going to listen to me. And with that, he said, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Of course, Pilate liked to do what so often the world likes to do. is like, you know what, I'm, you know what, to each his own, to each his own. But for me, I'm not going to take any kind of a stand on the truth. But Jesus was the opposite. Amen? Jesus said, I am the truth. I come to testify to the truth. And anyone who's for the truth is going to listen to me. The idea that we can't really know truth leads to dismissing Christianity as just those who have blind faith. Well, that's just a group of people that they just have blind faith. They just leap without really reasons to believe. That's a misrepresentation, amen, of Christianity. There are reasons to believe, and anyone who really seeks the truth with all their heart 
I believe we will really find it. Ephesians 6.10, here, be strong in the Lord. But Ephesians 6, verse, verse 14 says, the first thing about putting the armor of God on to be strong and to face those battles that come on us, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth or put on the belt of truth. So the first thing you got to put on is truth. Amen? You're not going to be strong if you're not in the truth, understanding the truth, seeking the truth, and being a lover of truth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 through 12 says, uh, One who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. So Satan is a liar, and his native tongue is deceit. And that sometimes there's bold-faced lies, but most of the time it's just twisting of the truth. Remember with Adam and Eve? Did God really say? And they questioned the words of God and questioned the motives of God to twist the truth and lie to Eve. It says, uh, um, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. Interesting, huh? The love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. And see, either we love the truth or we're apathetic toward the truth. If we're kind of, eh, whatever, to each his own, then Satan uh, sends a delusion, a powerful delusion that seems believable. But for those who love the truth, they see through it and they seek the truth and they find the truth. Amen? And are so saved. Romans chapter 2, verse 8, it gives insight into why we don't love the truth. Why we don't love the truth. But those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. In other words, if you don't love the truth, if you don't obey the truth, there's a couple reasons. One is you just want to do what you want to do. Right? We just want to go our own way. And that truth thing just kind of gets in our way. Right? Um, in another word to say self-seeking is just comfort-seeking. We want to be comfortable, but not only that, we want to make sure everyone else is comfortable. And so today we're going to start studying John the Baptist. And we're going to see that this guy cared more about the truth than making people feel comfortable. And I'll give you insight, it ended up costing his, him his head. It costed him his life. So if we're going to be strong in Christ, I'm not saying it's going to cost you your head necessarily, amen, but it is going to cost you. It's going to cost you your own comfort and our desire to have everyone comfortable around us. You know, historically, Christianity's, some of Christianity's strongest advocates have been people like Luke, intelligent, thorough, scientific people who set out often to prove Christianity wrong. If you've done any much research, you're not, it's not going to take you long before you find some agnostic or some atheist who's kind of tired of all this Christian you know, squabble going on, and they say, I'm going to set out to prove Christianity wrong and end up actually coming to faith. Lee Strobel, for example, is one of them. We've probably heard of the case for Christ. He did not believe in God. His wife had gotten involved in this kind of crazy church, 
And he's like, I'm sick of the conflict with my wife and I. I'm going to set out to prove Christianity wrong and so we can get along better. Guess what? Dude came to faith. Amen? He was a journalist. He thoroughly researched the resurrection because the Bible says, hey, if you can disprove the bodily resurrection of Christ, then Christianity is, a, is just a big, it's, just, it's all fake. It's all just man-made. So go prove that Jesus didn't bodily resurrect from the grave in Christianity is a false. Christianity is one of the only religions that calls itself on itself. It says, here's how you disprove all this. Just go uh, find a tomb with Jesus in it, and then all this is for naught. So he went and researched and researched, came up all the different directions, and he became a believer in Christ. Hugh Ross, an astrophysicist, an astrophysicist who didn't believe in God, says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove this thing once and for all, started reading the Bible. It's like, if I'm going to have integrity about this, i got to read their religious text. Started reading the Bible, guess what happens? Dude comes to faith, is now one of the most scientific, smart, uh, thinking uh, apologists for Jesus. Apologist means he's not apologizing for Jesus. It means that he's showing all the reasons to believe. Francis Collins, have you ever heard of him? A physician ge geneticist. He led the Human Genome Project, hired by the government to, to, to head this project. And again, started out, didn't believe in God, got more and more into the science of the human body, the genetics, the Bible, etc., came to strong faith in God. Now is an expert on the relationship between creation and evolution, in science and faith. And by the way, that's another big lie. Oh, I believe in science. Hey, I believe in science too, amen? I believe in science and I believe in God. And why do those two have to contradict themselves? It's another deceiving, it's a deception that Satan says it's either one or the other. It's not one or the other. This is why actually more scientists than not believe in God. So if you think you're so smart that you believe in science, you are mistaken, my friend, because more people smarter than you aghast, you know, actually believe in God. Now, maybe you're smarter than them, but um, a lot of smart people. How about C.S. Lewis? This is what he writes in his book, Surprised by Joy. As a young atheist, Lewis believed only the unsophisticated could, make, could mistake the Christian myth for history. I love that, right? Lewis was shocked to hear the strong atheist T.D. Weldon concede that the evidence for the Gospels was really quite good. Early 1926, the hardest boiled of all atheists I ever knew sat in my room and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels was surprisingly good. If he, the cynic of cynics, the toughest of the toughs, were not, as I would still have put it, safe, where could I turn? Was there then no escape? C.S. Lewis is saying, man, I put my faith in the people who don't believe. But even these people are saying, yeah, it's actually very historical. And actually it's been tried to be disproved for thousands, a couple thousand years, and it hasn't yet. And C.S. Lewis became one of the strongest advocates. And I like to end with this on this point, our own Trevor Hallberg. Yeah. Some of you remember Trevor. He used to sit right back there where Sammy is sitting. But he came to church, his wife came to church because she was spiritual, um, kind of, uh, no, she was, she, she, uh, anyway, sorry, Angie, uh, <laughs> making that comment, but
but uh, uh, she had more of an interest in God, and he came like kicking and screaming, right? I don't believe in God, no way, this is all a bunch of farce, because I know Christian hypocrites. That hypocrisy, that must mean there's not a Christian. Hey, wait a second, aren't we all a little bit hypocritical? So, so since when have you been exactly perfect to your own conscience? Right? We all have sinned. We've all made mistakes. So that's why we're all... Now, we don't want to be hypocrites, right? We want to be open and transparent with our weaknesses and ha- be people of integrity. we talk about that in the next point. But uh, uh, Trevor was convinced that he didn't believe in God, but he started seeking God. You guys remember when I preached that sermon and I showed Tim Bernicke's canoe? This amazingly beautiful, well-designed, crafted, put-together, piece-by-piece canoe. We showed the picture of it and showed the process of Tim designing it and making it. And I said, who in here believes that this canoe could have just actually evolved and popped into beautiful, perfect existence after millions of years? And he later says that was a punch in the gut to his atheism. And he, but he, did, he was a person who loved the truth. He didn't just run away from it. He says, if this is true, then I got to change. And he read book after book, Bible after Bible. One time he sat down with Michael Burns and I, who's a, who's a teacher friend from Minneapolis, and he had three questions. How do I know there's a God? How do I know he's the God of the Bible? And I can't remember what his third one was. But he knew his, what questions were his doubts and get to get those answers. And Michael and I commented afterwards, this guy wasn't looking for a way out. He was wanting to seek the truth. Amen? And now Trevor moved to Maine, and now he's in Arizona, actually does presentations on reasons to believe and, and the, 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 uh, you know, the veracity, which means truthfulness, of Christianity. Okay? So this is what, uh, um, what Luke is proposing through the study of the book of Luke is that you can know, you can be certain, the exact Truth. Truth brings strength into our souls. The truth of God in us being truthful gives us strength. Point number two is remaining righteous. Let's read on. Verse 5. Okay, so now we're introduced to Zacharias and Elizabeth, mom and dad of John the Baptist. Okay, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah and his wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. I want you to note the historian that Luke is. He didn't have to give those details, did he? He could have just said, you got Zacharias and you got Elizabeth. But why did he give the details? Because this is rooted in history. This is exact taste, place, and exact time. Here's where they come from. This is thoroughly investigated. Many witnesses. This is true. If you, if you don't believe the Bible's true, then prove it to me. A lot of times as Christians, we just get all, we got to prove everything. Wait a second. There's far more evidence to the veracity and truthfulness of the Bible and of Jesus. You prove to me why you think it's not there. Amen? Okay. I got a lot. Where'd that timer go? Okay, they were both righteous in the sight of God. I love that. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. 
but they had no choice. Oh, well, if they were righteous and walk us blamelessly, that means everything must have been going peachy keen in their lives. All their dreams are fulfilled, all their prayers are answered because they were righteous. And if I'm going to seek God and be righteous, then I better get flat out get rewarded and get rewarded quickly. Is that what it says? No way. Let's listen. It says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of people of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Let's stop right there. Point number two, remaining righteous. Remaining righteous. How are we going to be strong in Christ? We're not going to be strong if there's, we know there's unrighteousness going on in our lives and we're not dealing with it. They remained righteous. Zacharias and Elizabeth, they couldn't have a child. This was huge. This was horrible. They were heartbroken. They were, there was a lot of shame on a family if you could not have a child. It was interpreted you couldn't have a child because you were in sin, that God's curse was on you. Okay? Does that make sense? We don't interpret that this way now, but that's what it meant in the community. There was great shame in the community if you were barren. How easy would it have been to give over, right? To, to give over to discouragement, to give over to self-protection, uh, to turn on God, to turn on God's community. But it says they remained righteous in the sight of God. This word blameless is used. No double life, no secrets, nothing to hide. And by the way, how does the flesh handle times of discouragement, times of despair, times of heartache? I don't know about you, but my flesh tends to go to instant pleasure to counteract the pain that I feel. Are you with me? And so whatever pleasure you turn to, alcohol, porn, uh, 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 money, whatever, whatever it is, your flesh turns to re redesigning the bathroom, you know, so I can feel better. I don't know. I'm not saying it's necessarily evil to redesign your bathroom. But sometimes we turn to all kinds of things, sports. You know, we're all grieving the loss of the, the Packers and the Vikings. So, you know, it's kind of time to turn the page. You know, one more year, right? But maybe it's that that we look toward to uh, um, soothe our pain. They remained righteous, blameless, no double life, no secrets, nothing to hide. They remained servants. They didn't withdraw from serving God. Well, God doesn't love me. Why should I serve him? God hasn't treated me the way I expect to be treated. No, they kept serving. They kept loving God, loving the community giving, and they remain prayerful. So what does it mean to remain righteous? They remain blameless, they remain outward focused, and they remained prayerful. You know, uh, um, they become eventually the, the mom and dad of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, another example of someone who remained righteous. He called the whole nation to repent, including the non-Christian king at the cost of his life. But even then, he did not compromise his message. He remained strong in Christ. 
And even Jesus says, what did you go out to see? A reed swaying in the wind? And so often I can, I can tend, it's like, well, I better preach a message where everyone's going to feel good and be comfortable. It's like, no, you preach the truth and let the chips fall where they may. That's what John the Baptist did, amen? That's remaining righteous. How about you with your neighbors, your coworkers? Are you one way at church and another way at work? Do you speak the same, use the same words at work as you would at church? And I'm not necessarily getting all holier than now religious, but some of those words at work maybe shouldn't be used at church. You know what I'm saying? Right? How about you and I, okay? John the Baptist, Jesus called the greatest man ever to live. But did John the Baptist get egotistical and prideful and arrogant? He says, no, I must become less. Jesus must become more. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Do you hear the love of truth, the love of righteousness in his heart? Jesus, another example of remaining righteous, went all the way to and through the cross. And what was his spirit? What was his attitude on the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How much pain does it take to get you and I to go to unrighteousness? How much pain of loneliness, pain of sin, Pain of other people's sin. Pain of disrespect. Are you with me here? To get to go to where we don't remain righteous. These guys remained righteous. And lastly, what I want to talk about is wrestling with the word of God. Let's, let's finish this section. Verse 11, wrestling with the word. If we're going to be strong in Christ, we've got to be a people who wrestle with our doubts and wrestle with the word. Let's listen. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Quite a good news message right here. Amen. Pretty impactful time in the temple that day. Gabriel shows up. Hey, Zacharias, I got some good news. Your prayers have been heard. I'm going to send you a son. His name's John the Baptist. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know for certain? How will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man, and my wife is oh No, she's advanced in years. <laughs> like, dude was smart, right? He wasn't going to call his wife old. <laughs> Don't you, do you see that? I thought that was pretty cool. The angel answered him and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. We're going to talk about that response, because that seems like a... that's a, yeah, I know. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, you are old, dude. And your wife, yeah, you're right on. She's advanced. It, it's hard to believe. It's okay. 
you know what, just, just take one little step. Dude gets rebuked. He's like, I'm Gabriel. I stand in God's presence, and God has a message for you, and I'm appalled that you didn't believe my words. It's like, dude, wow. Sometimes God is so gracious with doubt. He's patient. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus, right? He's patient. He teaches. He trains, and he corrects. But we see here that at some point there is an expectation This is God's word, and you better believe it. And Jesus actually calls it a stubborn refusal to believe. Whoa. Pretty cool. Okay, let's read on, and then we'll we'll, we'll finish this up. Uh, The people were waiting for Zacharias and wondering at his delay in the temple. Had a little discipleship time with Gabriel right there. Talking about what the next step is. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had a, seen a vision in the temple and kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. It was a mute point. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. She kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace from among men. Um, Strength does not come from ignoring our doubts, from faking belief, but wrestling with the truth. How did, what was, what was Zacharias feeling? He was feeling doubt, and I appreciate his honesty, don't you? Dude's intimidating, Gabriel is, okay? He's afraid, but he's like honest, like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but we're old. Like, how's this going to happen? I don't see it. I appreciate that the fact that he was honest. God appreciates honesty. Jacob wrestled with God. Uh, Job wrestled with God. You know, do we wrestle with our doubts or do we just ignore them, hoping they'll go away? Wrestle with that thing right there. Um, okay, but his doubt was admonished, not coddled by Gabriel. Gabriel said, hey, this is of God. This is of God, and I expect you to believe. Amen? Jesus, after resurrected to the disciples, Mark 16, verse 14, says he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So in other words, he didn't rebuke them instantly for their lack of faith. He worked with their faith. He did miracles, right? He fed the 4,000, fed the 5,000, raised the dead, He did all these incredibly powerful things, and their faith was growing and growing. And then he died on the cross. He said, I'm going to die on the cross, but then I'm going to raise from the dead on the third day. And then that's what he did because the word of God happens the way God says it's going to happen. Amen? Oh, I just got a cramp. Sorry. Uh, And so Jesus did that. He buried, he was buried, he rose from the dead on the third day, and still the apostles are struggling to believe. And finally, Jesus is like, enough is enough. I've taught you, I've trained you, I've corrected you, and now I'm rebuking your stubborn refusal to believe. Some of us, honestly, we've been around the Bible our whole lives. We've seen God move and work and whatever, and yet when it still comes to thinking about the future, or how God can use us, or whatever. We still live in this kind of, oh, I don't know, eh, 
I'm, I'm a struggler. And that's news too. Well, I don't know. I'm just too sinful or I got too much fear or I got whatever. And God is patient with us, but make no mistake about it. At some point, God expects you to make a decision. Either this is true or it's not true. Either you're going to believe your doubts or you're going to believe your beliefs. Get off the stupid fence and go one way or the other. I'd rather have you hot or cold, but the lukewarmness is making me a little bit stomach is hurting. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Are you with me there? I remember I had to come to this point. I grew up going to church. My dad was a preacher. I heard the Bible. My dad talked. He quoted. He preached at me. We would be like watching the Vikings game. And he's like, Matthew. I was just like, Dad, stop for the love of God. Okay. Right. Are you with me there? But then there came a point where some prophets in my life said, listen, either you're going to follow Jesus or you're going to follow the world. Because right now you're doing a little bit of both, that little both action going on right? It's like, you need to make a decision. I remember walking home from that Bible study, walking on the sidewalks of Minneapolis to my house, and I said, this is pathetic. You're so good at acting spiritual, but on Saturday night and Friday night and every other night of the week, you don't act any spiritual. With me? And uh, uh, it's time to make a decision, and by the grace of God, praise God, I said, I'm going all in. I'm going all in. Some of us, we're still riding the fence. Maybe it's time to make a decision. Either you're all in or you're all out. Because God is interested in those who are one or the other. He appreciates your honesty. And then, he's, and then the word is fulfilled. Verse 24, she got pregnant. Praise God. But I love this. We'll close with this. Chapter 1, verse 37. The angel to Mary says, No word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. Do you believe that? Do you know the exact truth? Because you've sought the truth, you've remained righteous, and you've wrestled with God with your doubts. You can know. Go to the bank on it. Put your salvation, put your eternity on it. No word of God will ever fail. So if the Bible says repent, then you can repent, and you will be blessed when you repent. When the Bible says be baptized, then be baptized into Christ. Stop wavering and waffling. Just make Jesus Lord, okay? If the Bible says it, do it. It doesn't have to be complicated. Be honest with your doubts, but then come to a decision. Be strong in Christ. Get that, go ahead and get that video up, Josh. And we're going to end. Be strong in Christ. We've got to seek the truth, love it, and so be saved. We've got to remain righteous, and then we've got to wrestle with the Word of God. Study the Bible. If you're uh, new to this, or if you feel like, okay, I, I need to do that. I need to study the Bible. I've been half and half. Listen, we have this study series called Follow Me, and it really helps someone wherever they're at. It helps someone take the next step, helps someone to hear God's voice, study the Word, and whatever your next step is helps to discern that and take the next step. So I would encourage you, I would plead with you to take that step and seek the truth. Amen? And this video, is about, it's only two minutes long, but it shows the power of the Word of God in wrestling with the Word of God. And it shows the, the impact of the Word of God when we study it more than just on Sunday morning. So we'll do this, and then uh, uh, Brad's going to come up, give us some announcements and contributions, and then the lesson will be yours. Amen? Amen. Amen. There was a recent study by the Center for Bible Engagement 
where they pulled 40,000 uh, uh, general population in the U.S. from 8 to 80, and they just wanted to see how we are engaging with Scripture. Right. And they discovered something that actually became kind of the profound discovery of the entire study. It, they weren't even looking for this, and this is kind of became the highlight of the study. Right. Um, when we're in the Scripture one time a week, and that could be church on Sunday. That's pastor saying you open your Bible, we hear the message. One time a week had negligible effect on some key areas of your life. So I'll, I'm going to spell that out more here in a moment. Two times a week, negligible effect. Now at three times a week, there was a blip on the map. Like there was a heartbeat. Something happened, again, a heartbeat. Okay. But here was a profound discovery. When we're in the scripture four times a week, it literally spikes off the chart. You would expect that it'd be one, two, th I mean, there'd be a gradual incline right. on the effect and impact that would have in your life, but it was literally one, two, three, four, something radically happens. Okay, you got my curiosity. To this what, extent. What kind of behavior is being affected? Feeling lonely drops 30%. Wow. Ang four times a week in the four Bible. Four times a week in the Bible. Okay. Anger issues drop 32%. Uh, bitterness in relationships, marriage, a relationship with your kids, and so on, drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant. You know, if there was one area when I'm talking with people that that they'll be honest about is they just feel spiritually stagnant. Ask them the question, how much time are you spending in the scripture? If they're in the scripture four times a week or more, it drops 60%. Wow. Viewing pornography drops 61%. That's very important. Now, on a flip positive side, sharing your faith wow. jumps 200%. Wow. Because you have a confidence in God's word. And then discipling others jumps 230%. That's, that's amazing right there.